Let's open in prayer and we'll begin on our sixth lesson on Jonah here tonight. So let's open in prayer, please. Father, we thank you so much for this day. Again, we have been blessed with tremendous health that we can be here and, and Lord, with our senses that we can, in, can come and read and, and see the senses, see things, Lord, that you have provided for us, not just in your word, but in the handiwork and the painting of what you have made all around us. Nature shouts your name. And Lord, tonight as we explore Jonah, in this very important lesson tonight into what I believe is the greatest miracle of this entire book. I pray, Lord, that you, your spirit teaches and helps those who are listening, Lord, to, to really glean what is important and, Lord, to impact our lives from what we learn tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, my friends, we're on our sixth lesson on Jonah. And we've come across some very fascinating things and some miraculous things. But tonight we're going to be looking at Jonah chapter 3. And we're going to be reading from uh, and, and taking our text from the 4th through the 10th verse of Jonah, A Whale of a Tale. So let's begin, first of all, as we always do, by reading the passage that we're going to be looking at tonight. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. You know what's going on here? You know what's happening in this passage? It's a revival. This is the greatest revival probably ever recorded in human history, considering the population of this city, as it tells us in chapter 4. This is a huge city, and this is a revival. I mean, Billy Graham never even had this many people turn at one time. This is an amazing event. And, and look what was the start. Look how it started. Uh, chapter 3, verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So Jonah goes into this huge metropolis. And as we've talked about before and I, in previous lesson, this was a massive city. It was the largest city of the ancient world at that time. Um, no, other, no other city came even close to being as big as this with its suburbs and stuff. Um, this was a huge city. But what's going on is the people of this evil culture, the Assyrians of all people, are turning and repenting. And it's a real, true repentance. They weren't just doing words. 
we're going to see it change their lives. Now, this reminds me a little bit, as I was studying this, to what took place at Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember back in Genesis 19, there were, uh, this is just before happened, uh, what just prior happens in Genesis 14, is that Abraham and Lot had separated because there were little disputes that were going on between their followers. Uh, and so Abraham offers Lot, you either go east or west, which way you go, I'll let you choose and I'll take the other one. And it says that Lot looked over to the east and he saw it was green and lush, a garden. And he says, okay, I'll take that land. And so he goes over there. And he settles into the five cities, two of which were called Sodom and Gomorrah. And this, it's amazing today, because if you've never been to Israel and you look to the east of the Dead Sea, it's the land of present-day Jordan, but that was the land of later on becoming Moab and, and the Amorites just to the north of that. That's where this area was. And if you look there today, <laughs> it is the most desolate spot on earth. There is just nothing over there um, because God destroyed it. And he he'd really destroyed the city. Genesis 19, verses 12 and 13. Uh, these visitors that had come to Abraham on their way to go destroy Nineveh, they are taken in by Lot to his house, and they start to get into big trouble. And it says, Then the men, that's these angels, this is verses 12 and 13 of chapter 19. Then the men have said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of this place? For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And God did destroy it, like I say. In the Bible, it talks about this land being a virtual garden that there were beans, trees, it was lush. You go there today, you can find the remains, and scientists have found the remains of peas, wheat, barley, all fossilized into the ground there, all preserved in the dry, arid condition. And what also, I'm showing you a picture right now of Dr. Bryant Wood, um, who's an uh, archeologist who went over to look for the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other three of the five cities, and he came across areas that were extremely high in sulfur. In reading some other archaeologists and scientists' papers there, sometimes you have to wear masks, um, uh, uh, like a gas mask, because the, the sulfur content is so strong on certain days, you can't hardly breathe there. Looking at this picture, you see just what's the remains of some buildings and walls, but a lot of yellow ground, that's pure sulfur, and it's all through here. And you're thinking, and, and look at this picture, how desolate that is. You don't see any green thing anywhere around. But when Lot was living there, it was lush in a garden. Now, what happened to it? Well, that's a whole other chapter, and it's getting into a thing on archaeology. But what, what is, some scientists have found, Dr. Wood included in this, is that this land is also high in oil. And what they did is, uh, the way God created this, that there was a large oil reserve, hundreds of square miles, uh, underground in a large cavern. And what geologists believe is the whole uh, surface of the, the top of that cave, which was the exposed ground where they built these cities, at one time collapsed. And as it collapsed, the whole plate, the whole tectonic plate there just sank, instantly fell down. The mass size of it and everything, which or, uh, geologists and scientists have said, if this happened the way that we think, the, the flat thing going down 
uh, the flat surface of the top of the cave or uh, reserve fell a couple of hundred feet maybe and when it did all this oil and stuff was squirted out the sides up into the atmosphere and through <coughs> excuse me and and through like static electricity it could have ignited and then rained down fire all scientifically feasible and we see a result of something like this happening because you see these deposits and stuff from sulfur and brimstone uh, all through this area sulfur is a primary component of all of this and it will not grow with plants around uh, it won't grow, let, allow you to grow plants here it is a desolate place and yet at one time it was a gorgeous place but God did destroy this and I mean when he destroys something you don't see many metropolises there I mean he wiped it out and it's still it's been still a mystery of where all these five cities were located they were so thoroughly destroyed but they're also written uh, um, about these cities in different ancient writings. We know they existed besides the Bible. Let's go back. Jonah 3.5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now I want to draw your, your attention to a key phrase here. Very important phrase. The words believed God and the people of Nineveh believed God now that word believe there is the Hebrew word Amon which is the same word we use for in English trust or to be true to to put trust in or to be true to they believed God now who what, what is the name of God here is it one of their gods no the word God here they believed God that is the name Elohim in Hebrew. Elohim, the supreme God, the creator God. In Genesis 1.1, this is the God who created everything. It's one of God's names as he has many characters, uh, characterizations, many attributes, and he has different names like this. This is one of the names of God, of who we believe in. And we call God. This is the same God that Moses talked to. It um, is also Jesus, et cetera, et cetera. Elohim is the supreme God. So what did they put, what did they do? They believe. This is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to believe in God. Isn't that what Jesus constantly was speaking of? Wasn't this the message having to do with John the Baptist? Repent, believe. This is what's going on. And we see this here in Jonah. We see the same thing in the New Testament. But going back to Jonah, look at the next verse now. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Now this is so cool, because the Ninevites, who had multiple gods, who were the most evil culture, one of the most evil cultures who's ever existed on the planet, the enemies of Israel and Judeans, they turned from their gods and they believed God. They put their trust in Elohim. They swore to be true to Elohim. And even the king himself gets up from his throne and puts sackcloth on himself and sits down in ashes. Now, if you've ever wondered about this behavior, this is a common thing. It's an outward sign back in those days uh, uh, of faith. What's going on? It's a faith, not just a faith that, ooh, I'm going to believe a believer in God. This is an outward sign of faith that causes a change in their behavior. That's what God wants. 
for you to believe, to put your trust and be true to. And then when you do this, God starts doing great things in your life. It changes your behavior. You are no longer a new person, the same person. As, as Paul writes in Corinthians, you become a new creation. Of course, this is a little different in the New Testament because God puts his Holy Spirit in us. But even in the Old Testament, when people um, trusted or committed to God, they started changing the way that they did things. A change in their behavior. You see, it's very easy for people to walk around and say, I'm a Christian or I'm a follower of God. If someone comes up to me and says, well, I'm a follower of God. Well, that's nice. Does he have any proof of it? That's what James chapter 2, 14 through 26 is all saying. Just don't walk around saying you're God. If you really have God, if you're committed to God, and as, as a Christian, if the Holy Spirit's living inside of you, you're going to see actions because you're gonna, it's going to change your behavior. This king changed his behavior. He got up off his throne, took off his nice soft uh, robes, put on sackcloth, and, and changed his whole thing that day. And he's calling for everybody to do the same thing. Change your behavior. Let's not do what we were planning to do. Let's change it and let's submit ourselves to God. Let's repent. That's what he's saying. And that is a sign of faith. That's what James is talking about. A faith that is put into action. So when someone comes up to me and says, Michael, I'm a Christian. That's nice. Have I got any evidence that I can see? I, I just have to take their word for it. So what I have been known to do at times is say, prove it. What have you done for God? Well, I, 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 and then they sometimes don't know what to say. But that's on a whole different topic here. But I want you to see, this is a type of faith that changes behavior. That's true repentance. And it just doesn't do it, you know, um, it's not just carrying your Bible around. It's the way that you act. And we need to be the same way. If you're a Christian, people should be able to know you're a Christian. If you're a follower of God, people should be able to know you're a follower of God. How? By your language, for one. By the jokes you tell, is another. What you do in your free time is another. How do you live for God? Does it show I mean, that's what James is saying. Does your faith, your actions show your true faith? Or you just have a bunch of words? Well, these people obviously just have, did not have a bunch of words. It changed their behavior. You get the verses 7 through 9. Speaking of the king still. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from this evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? May, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The king is actually commanding everyone in his kingdom here to call out to God. Not just to um, just say, okay, we're not going to do what we were doing. To call out orally. You know, it does say in the book of Romans, if you confess the name of Jesus, you'll be saved. I mean, it's more than just mouthing words. As James says, it's the actions that go along with your faith here. The king is calling people to come out mightily to God. He also commands everyone to turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Remember what these people were like? And he is telling them to do this. 
Put on sackcloth. Don't, e don't even drink water. Don't even go out and do this. I mean, even to your animals and stuff. Now, first of all, this often comes up when I talk about this. Why did they put sackcloth on animals? Why did the king do that? It's a good question. And actually, the best answer I've found for this is uh, from Unger in his commentary on Jonah. And he says this. To put the sackcloth on the animals was a common semantic custom in times of distress and mourning to include animals. The cries of the hungry beast being added intentionally to the demonstrations of the people. So we're getting not just the people calling out orally, even the animals are bellowing and stuff because they're thirsty and they're hungry. Now, I've come across people, too, who say, oh, but this is not true repentance. Nineveh was, I mean, they were too evil. God may have spared them here, but they were still evil. God would never have saved them. They weren't Jewish. They weren't following God's commands and stuff. Well, you can argue that. But let me show you how God viewed it. Go to the book of Matthew. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, Jesus makes a reference to these people. And he says in verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. You see, Jesus is telling us, and Jesus is God, that their repentance was true. And at the judgment, they're going to be condemning other people because they got really turned on to God, and it was real. That's what he's saying. And because Jesus is speaking of this in the historical sense, this really did happen. Go to verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, I'll tell you, this is fascinating to me. You want to know a miracle of the book of Jonah? It's not the whale, the, the fish thing. No. It's not the vine that we'll see in the next chapter. No. The real miracle that takes place, the greatest miracle in this, is the repentance of this evil city turning totally to God and God accepting their repentance of faith. That miracle is even more amazing than that of a fish. This miracle of God forgiving these Assyrians who had oppressed his own people, who had killed, tortured, raped, murdered Israelites and Judeans, God shows he's more concerned with saving them than destroying them. Now, some have suggested that this is a contradiction in God's character. Critics tell us, well, see, God changed his mind. God changes his mind on, on things. You don't know exactly what God's thinking today because times have changed. No, God is immutable. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said he and will he not do it? Or Malachi 3, 6 doesn't get any plainer than this. For I, the Lord, do not change. Or even James chapter 1, verse, uh, verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God does not change. He does not. And that's not what happened. But people will still say, wait a minute. This is a perfect example that God can change his stance on something, whether it being right or wrong. Oh, no, it can't. 
God did not change his mind. Does it say that God changed his mind? No, it doesn't say that. It says that God relented. That's not changing your mind. You see, you're, you're, those who insist on this are missing the whole point of the story. The point of the story is showing salvation. This is a book of salvation and how evil we can possibly be. The more filthy, the more reckless, the more disgusting we are is not too much for the grace of God to cover us. You cannot out God's grace is what this is showing. He was waiting for these people to repent. That's why he sent his prophet there and he does the same with us. As unrepentant sinners, we are doomed to hell. Yet, Christians go to heaven. What, did God change his mind? No. He doesn't change his mind. If we accept his grace, we are not condemned but granted life. And by the way, keep reading in history and you see something. God ended up still destroying Nineveh because they went back to their evil ways the next generation that came along. And so it was just one generation. God still destroyed Nineveh. But not that generation. That generation was saved. They repented. And because they repented, he granted them grace. No, listen. Listen carefully. It wasn't God who changed. It was the Assyrians who changed. It wasn't God who changed. It was the Assyrians who changed. When people repent and turn to God. He doesn't change his mind. That is his offer of grace to all who turn to him. Now, I've also had people say, well, I, I can't believe this story because as evil as the Assyrians were, there's no way this many Assyrians would turn to God. Well, you're not going to find this in the Bible, but if you look through archaeology and history and ancient writings, you start to find something fascinating how God set up this whole situation. You see, God set the stage for this whole event. And boy, did he set a stage. He is very dramatic. You see, during this stage, when Jonah comes in, something just prior to this, just for a few years, uh, a couple of decades before, something started happening to, to uh, Nineveh. During the years 810 to 745 BC, Nineveh struggles as a nation. This is under the kingship of uh, Adad Mir Ari and Ashurdan III. During those two reigns, Nineveh started to fluctuate. And it wasn't because it was starting to fluctuate because of being defeated in battles. These people didn't lose battles. What was happening was internally something started to make them collapse. It's, it's really puzzled archaeologists and historians. Uh, it did for a long time until they started seeing and reading, finding other artifacts and, and other writings telling us what's taking place here. Now, this, let me just show you how God set the stage. Just before Jonah comes, there are three solar eclipses that occur. Three solar eclipses that occur. And the thing is, by this time, the Assyrians, with the help of Chaldeans, were able to predict solar eclipses. Now, if you have three solar eclipses that just appear out of nowhere, what are you going to think if you're a pagan person back in this culture? The gods are angry. Now, they had a lot of gods, but obviously at least one of these gods is angry. Then, soon after this, just before Jonah comes in, a few, about a decade before, there's a major earthquake in Nineveh. A major earthquake. Ooh, earthquake happens. What do we think? The gods must be angry. And then, what usually follows an earthquake? 
just before Jonah walks in, there's seven years of a plague. You have a plague? Think back to the time of the Egyptians and Pharaoh. There's a God that's angry. So they knew something was going on. Something with the deities um, controlling the world. And then when you have all these bad things happening, the kingdom, people are starting to question their gods is what it comes down to. And then what happens, Jonah comes walking in with a strange tale and telling of the, the fish story of the one that got away that was unlike anybody's story before this. Now, history records that the people at that time were beginning to question their gods just prior to Jonah. It's the absolute perfect time for Jonah to appear. God had this all set up and planned so perfectly. And not just that he had it planned, but what he had happened to Jonah with the fish was planned. He knew Jonah was going to run away. He knew this was going to happen, and he used it because Jonah comes in looking weird after his encounter with the fish, telling the fish story. But now here's where it gets so fascinating. One of the chief gods of the Assyrians was a god by the name of Oenus. Oenus was the fish god. The Lord, often called the Lord of the Sacred Eye, he was also called the god of wisdom. How do we know anything about this? The his Greek historian Berossus, he wrote about uh, Oenus and tells us this. And I'm going to read out of his documents that have been found. Quote, in the first year, there appeared from the part of the Erythian Sea, which borders Babylonia, an animal destitute of reason by the name of Oannes, whose whole body was that of a fish, that under the fish's head he had another head, with feet also below, similar to those of a man, subjoining to the fish's tail. His voice, too, and language was articulate and human. A representation of him is preserved even to this day. He gave them an insight into letters and sciences and arts of every kind. Oenus taught them to construct cities, to found temples, to compile laws. In short, he instructed them in everything which could tend to soften manners and humanize their lives." End quote. I have here, I'm showing you pictures right now uh, from archaeological reliefs in Iraq, Nineveh area, the Assyrians. And these, you see in this one image, this picture of a half man, half fish uh, in stone relief. Here's another one um, showing him in this god that's got a fish head and a human head, and he's got legs and stuff, the body. Um, so many of these things have been found. Isn't it interesting that God had a fish story happen to Jonah and one of their chief gods was a god of fish and man together? Wow. God had a plan for all this. And you know how this ends? Nineveh becomes monotheistic at this time. It only lasted for about a generation. But the, kings, the king of Nineveh ordered all the people to get rid of their idols. And they destroyed their idols. And apparently, what historians tell us is that they went down and they uh, came down to worshiping just one God. The problem for archaeologists is that there's no images of this God. We know that they did it, but we don't have any statues 
or graven images of this one God they worshipped. Now, doesn't that make sense? You've got a prophet of God here. The people repent. They turn to God. They probably wanted to build idols and stuff to him, graven images to God. But Jonah, being an expert on God's law, says no. Right there in the beginning of the commandments, you shall not make a graven image of the Lord your God. To me, this is perfect sense. You're not going to find an idol of their monotheistic God because they were told not to ever do that as they repented and turned to God. But then, often what happens when people start to get better, when things start to improve, they turn away from their gods, and eventually Nineveh goes back to its evil way. When things got better, oh, we don't think it was God that did all that. And so they bring back all their gods, they start worshiping, they get even worse than they were, and then God does exactly what he said he's going to do. Not long after, he destroys, utterly destroys Nineveh. So much destroyed it, it was thought to be a mythical city until the 1800s because there was no sign of it. It was buried in a sandstorm after being totally destroyed. The book of Nahum tells you how God was going to destroy the city. And history tells us that's exactly what happened. But that's another story in another study. Fascinating stuff. I love this book. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time here. Opening up uh, this, your word and, and gleaning into this and seeing insight. And Lord, it's just fascinating to me. And I do pray for each person who's listening right now that, Lord, their faith becomes more like how these Ninevites were, that it's just not just words saying that I'm a follower of God, but a change in their behavior, in their actions, in their speech and everything. Lord, may we all be like that. Well, I know we're not saved by works, but we are saved to do good works and let people see that. And by doing these good deeds, it helps prove our lives have been changed. So thank you for this time. Bless us all in Jesus' name. Amen.